we're going to start the book of Joshua tonight. And on the screen behind me is a map. The books of Joshua and Kings and Samuel really need to be studied with map in hand because the only way you can really understand what's going on is to have a map. General Allenby, a British general, apparently studied the Bible when he was campaigning in then Palestine and he set up his military strategy based on the Bible. That's the way it was done then and the land hasn't changed. So he organized his forces and did his maneuver based on the Bible and won quite handily. A quick overview, this little chunk I've got in the center from Ziff at the south to Endor at the north is the strategic center of Israel. And it's dominated by a couple of terrain features. This area in varying shades of brown is the central ridge route. And this ridge goes clear down to Kadesh and terminates here a little bit above Shechem. And above that is the plain of Esdraelon, which goes across from east to west, basically. Down the center of the map is the Jordan River. And then, of course, on the right are what are now the Jordanian highlands. They would have been Gilead and so forth. Gilead being up here, and then these are highlands. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on Earth that is not in the ocean. And you have an elevation difference between the Jordan River as it enters the Dead Sea and the high point on the ridge that goes north and south of about 2,000 feet. So it's a dramatic elevation difference. Then, of course, over on the left of the map is the Mediterranean Sea. And between the Mediterranean Sea and the Central Highlands, there are various features there. So you have the Shafila, which is this rolling hill area. And then you have the coastal plain. And as you go north and south, you can move along the coastal plain. You can move along the central ridge route, which goes right down the crest of the ridge from clear down at Hebron, which is down here, all the way up to Shechem. You've got the Carmel Mountains, which cut the nation in half right across there. Megiddo here is the major pass through the Carmel Mountains. So one of the things that we're going to find as we do history books is Israel is concentrated in the central highlands because that's the strategic center of Israel. Whoever controls those highlands controls the whole area. On the coast, at various times, you have Philistines and the military tactics of the Philistines are different than the Israelites. The Philistines have chariots. Everybody understands that chariots were the cavalry of that day. Anybody know what changed cavalry from chariots to horseback? The invention of the stirrup. Because once you had stirrups, you could sit on the back of the horse, which means that your infrastructure is smaller. You don't need this wagon trailing along behind you. You are more agile and you can fight more effectively from the back of a horse, assuming you can stay on the horse. What the stirrup did is gave you the ability to stay on the horse and you could stand up and you could swing your sword or your mace or 
your lance or whatever you had and be able to operate from the back of the horse. So in biblical times, the stirrup had not been invented. So cavalry was chariots, a little two-wheel wagon with one or more horses drawing it. And the advantage there is you could have a couple of people on a chariot. You could have a driver and you could have somebody doing fighting and so forth. But anyway, the plain here is chariot country. It's nice and flat and works well with wheels. The Central Highlands is dismounted infantry. You can't get rolling with a whole bunch of chariots on the highlands, so the tactics in the highlands are dismounted infantry. And then, as I say, you've got the Carmel Mountains, which go sort of diagonally from east to west or west to east, however you like. And then up here, above the Carmel Mountains, you've got the plain of Vizdralon. And again, that's cavalry country, chariot country, broad, open, flat. So as you study the history of Israel, when they're messing with the Philistines, the contention is in this area, which I'm pointing to, which is just downslope to the west from the Central Highlands, and that's an area of rolling hills, much like the foothills around Boulder, where you've got gently rolling hills so you can use chariots, but it's transitional to where you have to use infantry. And that's where things like the Battle of David and Goliath take place on the Shephelah, because again, you have the Philistines out on the plain, you have the Israelites up in the hills, and that interface is this area of rolling hills called the Shephelah. The other piece of terrain that is key from a military perspective is this area right in the central highlands north of Jerusalem, and that's called the Saddle of Benjamin. So if you were to look at the central ridge, north and south, it's high between Bethel and Shechem, and it's high south of Jerusalem, and you've got a saddle here where it's much lower. So whoever controls that saddle controls east-west movement across that ridge, and they also control north-south movement along the central ridge. And of course, when Israel gets the land divided, you've got two major tribes. Each has been given a blessing by first Jacob and then Moses, indicating that they are leaders. They're the two big tribes, Judah and Joseph. Joseph, of course, being divided into Manasseh and Ephraim. But Judah and Joseph are the two big tribes, and Joseph is north of the saddle of Benjamin, and Judah is south of the saddle of Benjamin. And what God does is puts Benjamin right between them. And Benjamin is a small tribe. They don't really have aspirations of kingships. They're tiny, but they're kind of nasty. So what they do is they sit in that saddle of Benjamin and they serve as a buffer between Judah and Joseph. Because if either Judah or Joseph controls that central saddle, then they control everything. Now, coming into Israel, what we're going to deal with today, obviously, is the invasion of Israel. And there's two ways that that's happened. I don't. Consider Abraham an invader, quote unquote. Jacob, as you remember, spent 20 some odd years up here in Haran, which is at the top of the Fertile Crescent where the Euphrates River makes a bend in southern Turkey. Spends 20 some odd years there and he comes back 
and he comes down the King's Highway, which runs to the east of the Jordan River in the uh, Jordanian Heights, and he comes down the King's Highway through Damascus, and he fetches up here at Mahanaim, where the Jabbok River comes in from the east and marries with the Jordan River. And Mahanaim is where Penael is, where he wrestles with the angel, and that's where he and his brother Esau meet. This Jabbok River Valley is very rugged, so if you're going to fight somebody bigger than you, being in that river valley is a good piece of defensive territory. It's really hard to dig people out of there. So, for example, when Saul is killed and his son assumes the kingship, but not very solidly, where he goes is he goes to the Jabbok River Valley and he hangs out there because he doesn't want David to be able to get in there and dig him out. When David flees from his son, when Absalom takes over and runs David out of Jerusalem, David flees to Mahanaim up here. It's rugged territory, and if somebody's trying to dig you out of that, it's pretty difficult. So one way to come in is down from the south and then down the Jabbok River, and then you can go up one of these wadis. And as you remember, Jacob starts at Sukkot. So he comes down out of the Jabbok River, out of that canyon, and fetches up at Sukkot, where he builds booths for his animals, and then he comes up out of there and he goes to Shechem. He comes right up this wadi, and he winds up at Shechem, and that's where we have the unfortunate incident with Dinah and, and all that kind of stuff. So now it's Joshua's turn, and Joshua needs to be able to invade the country. And so what he does is he has just finished cleaning up the east bank of the Jordan and has destroyed uh, Sihon and Og, and they've taken over that whole area and have set up places for their families and so forth and their cattle. And, of course, the armed men are going to go across the river with the main body. So the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who are on the east bank of the Jordan, all their fighting men are going across the river with Joshua. And they will stay across the river on the west bank of the Jordan until the country is pacified. So what you have here is Jericho on the west side of the Jordan River, down in the Jordan River Valley, and Jericho is a major city. It's huge. It controls the way up out of the Jordan River to the Central Highlands. So what Joshua has to do is he has to get past Jericho to get his army up on top of the ridge in the saddle of Benjamin. And then once he is situated there with his army, he is in a position now to strike south, to strike west, and to strike north. So his strategy is going to start at Shittim, which we'll see today. He's going to cross the Jordan here. He's going to besiege Jericho and take that down. I don't think we're going to get that far today. And then from there, he's going to come up out of the Jordan River Valley, and he's going to hit Ai and Bethel, and those are right in the saddle of Benjamin. So his military objective, if you will, is to take that saddle, because once he sits there, he can go in any direction, and his base will be at Gilgal, which doesn't show on this map, but it's about right there. So he's going to have a base at Gilgal, and going to get up on the saddle, 
And then the first thing he's going to do is he's going to swing west and south and police up Canaanite cities down here. And once he's got the south under his control, then he'll turn and strike north. Everybody's sort of oriented on what we're doing and where we're going. If you have that broad overview, the things that Joshua does make complete military sense. Not that you would expect that they wouldn't, but he's doing everything based on the terrain. Some of you may have heard this story. This, by the way, is how I came to faith. When I was still an Episcopalian, we had a temporary priest one summer, and his hobby was military history and maps. And so he spent the summer doing classes, laying out the stuff in the Bible on a map so that you could see what the terrain looked like and match it to what the events were. And I have fairly extensive training as a military engineer, and it became very obvious to me very quickly that I was dealing with real history. In other words, the places that things happened made perfect sense from a terrain perspective and a military perspective. And so I said, huh, well, if that's true, what else is true? And God uses various ways. All right, let's start with Joshua 1. And God willing, we may get through 1 and 2 tonight. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I am giving to them, the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. All right, stop there a minute. This is, I believe, the fifth time that God has told Joshua to be strong and courageous. Remember, at the end of Deuteronomy, which we read last week, when Moses commissioned Joshua, the Lord spoke to Joshua at that time and told him, be strong and courageous. Now, what is the upshot of that. I mean, God says, I am going to destroy all these people. I'm going to give you this land. What's the point of the strong and courageous part? I mean, God's going to do it, right? Forty years prior, they had tried to go into the land and had failed in courage and had not taken it. God will not do anything for you that he expects you to do for yourself. So in order for you to conquer the Philistines, you've got to strap on your sword and you've got to march forward and you've got to swing your sword. And if you are intimidated and you don't advance, God is not going to advance for you. So you got to look right in the face of those big hairy Canaanites and Hittites and whatever other rights you've got there. And you've got to put on your sword and you've got to march at them. And you've got to be ready to swing your sword and understand that you're going to be in a fight. It is not the case that you're just going to sort of be able to sit down there and God's going to knock them over like 10 pins for you and you get to walk in. No, you got to fight to get your way in, and if you're not courageous in your fighting, you will not prevail. But if you are courageous and you do attack and go forward, then God will do things like sending hornets in there and sowing confusion among them, and all sorts of good things will happen for you. But you've got to strap on your sword 
and walk into them. So verse 7 again. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So you got two things. One, you need to be courageous, and two, you need to pay attention to the Torah. God has given you the Torah. He's given you this set of instructions on how to live in a way that's pleasing to him. And as long as you do that, he'll be with you. If you abandon the Torah, you're on your own. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Notice where the book is supposed to be. In your mouth. You're supposed to speak the word of God into the situations you face, and you are then to step out with courage. So there's sort of two things. One is you got to know the book, you've got to have the book, but the other thing is you've got to speak it. It isn't enough just to sort of tuck it away and, gee, I know somewhere it says that no weapon formed against me will prosper, but I don't know where. And furthermore, I'm not going to say it because if I say it and it doesn't work, then I'll just really look like a fool. No, you got to step up and say, no weapon formed against me will prosper. And then step off and go. That, by the way, is Isaiah, not the Torah, but you get the idea. Isaiah 54:17. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment you do condemn. This is your heritage as a servant of the Lord. That's a really good scripture, by the way. When you need to do something that gets your back up about. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers and the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little one, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. The two and a half tribes that are going to stay on the east side of the Jordan, he's reminding of their promise that they would go with the rest of the nation. Verse 16. And they answered Joshua, All you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your word, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. The tribes are saying to Joshua, we will follow you just like we followed Moses, but we expect you to be strong and courageous. This is a military experience. The worst thing in the world is a unit that has a commander who is hesitant and isn't decisive, doesn't know what to do, and dithers around and so forth. If you study the Civil War, 
you'll find that what you had is a number of generals, especially on the northern side, who were not decisive. And the south went through them like a hot knife through butter because the northern generals wouldn't make decisions. They were bureaucrats. And they wanted to be safe. They always wanted to do the safe thing. The southern generals, on the other hand, were fighting for their own homeland. And it was only later on when Grant finally took over that things started to turn around. These two and a half tribes are staying to the east of the Jordan River. Yet in the promise that God made to Israel, the Jordan River is in fact the eastern boundary of the land that he promised them. Let's talk about that for a minute. So what happened, obviously, you all know the story, is as they took out Sihon and Og, they say, wow, this is good cattle country. God, can we have this? And Moses, of course, gets really upset with them because he thinks that we may be repeating the sin of the spies where somebody doesn't want to go in and the whole nation then orbits in the desert for 40 years. So they say, no, 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 no. We'll go across and help. It turns out that those two and a half tribes are in fact the first ones that go into idolatry and are in fact the first ones that go into exile. The lesson I take from that, which I think is actually a very good lesson, is when God promises you something, don't stop short of what he has promised you if you think you've found something better. They're looking at this land. This is great cattle country. We got cattle. I can't imagine anything better. But God has promised the entire nation the current land of Israel. And what they've done is they have stopped short of what God has promised because their eyes have seen something that they think is better. And what's going to happen eventually is those two and a half tribes are going to be the first ones who become idol worshipers. And they're also going to be the first ones that get sent into exile. Now, one of the things that is going to happen is Joshua is going to send in two spots. And as far as I know, they accomplish nothing except to get Rahab saved. But one of the things that is interesting about Scripture is history is prophecy. So the first time they tried to go into the land, they sent spies out. So they're sending spies out again. They don't actually accomplish anything much. And the other thing is when they come back, remember the 12 spies that went into the land came back and gave a report to all the people. These guys are going to come back and give a report directly to the command group. They are not going to stand out in the middle of the town square and say, oh my God, the place is full of giants. He's very carefully controlling what happens here to avoid a potential repetition of what had happened before. So, chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. It says she's a prostitute, and I am sure she is. But the other thing I am also fairly sure is she's running an inn, right on the edge of town in the wall. One of the things that happens at inns is you often have lots of things that go on there. 
besides just getting something to eat and going to bed. Lots of refreshment. So the idea that Rahab sort of got a couple of businesses going there is perfectly understandable. So the king goes to Rahab. I am suspecting, this is not scripture, it's just me speculating, that she's got an inn. And so a couple of strangers show up in town. That's the first place you look. So verse 4. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. When, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, or you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way of the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So you got spies coming in, and you go through Jericho, because Jericho is the main pathway up to the central highlands. They could have gone either way. If they're on a military expedition, they could continue on up the pass, or they could have said, gee, somebody's found out about us and turned around and tried to get away. The obvious idea here is that they've turned around and tried to get away. And, of course, Rahab has hidden them on the roof, Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you have devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. So, a couple of things. Obviously, in that part of the world, it is well known what happened to Egypt, even though it was 40 years ago. And 40 years is not a great span of time, especially not for something like that. So the idea that all of this is known should take you back to one of the purposes of the ten plagues. As we've said many times when we're studying Exodus, God was perfectly able to bring on a plague of darkness and all the Egyptians are fumbling around and can't see anything. The Israelites had light. First thing God could have done is, all right, lights out, Israelites, come on, let's go. And the whole thing would have been over in 20 minutes. He didn't do that. He goes through these ten plagues, taking a year or more, and makes a whole bunch of points. And part of the point he is making is to people like the Canaanites. So that when Israel finally does come into the land, they have a fearsome reputation, or their God has a fearsome reputation. And the idea that God is with them and fighting for them causes the enemies to melt away. That's one of the purposes of the plagues. That's also one of the ways in which God is going with them. God says, I will not leave you or forsake you. And, you know, we're going to have rocks falling from the sky and a long day and all sorts of stuff. And I mean, that's, that's really cool. But part of what God has given them is his own reputation. So when they start to advance, they are advancing against people who are primed to run because of these stories that have been told in that region for the last 40 years. And the other thing that she says, 
The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I will suggest to you that that amounts to a confession of faith. And then she says in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So what she's saying is, I am convinced that your God is God, and I am throwing myself on his and your mercy. 14. The mid said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window of her house that was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, for the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, then afterwards you may go your way. And then said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. What does this remind you of? Passover lamb. These are virtually the same instructions that are given to Israel at the Passover. Put the blood of the lamb on the door, and while the death angel is moving through the city, everybody stays in this house. And if anybody goes out of the house, then he's fair game. But if he stays in the house, he will be under our protection. You've got bookends, if you will. So you had this whole thing started with blood on the door and everybody staying inside while the angel of death passed through the city. It is going to now end with a scarlet thread in this case, and everybody stays inside while the angel of death, the Israelites, destroy the city. And we're going to have another bookend, which we won't get into tonight. They left by going through the Red Sea. They're going to come in now by going through the Jordan River. And in both cases, they go through on dry ground. So you have everything that happened going out of Egypt is now happening in reverse, going back into the world. They came out of Egypt into the wilderness. The wilderness is a special place. In the wilderness, you get water from the rock, you get manna from heaven, you got the pillar of fire in the middle of the camp, and the flash to bang time between sin and God taking action is really short. So the wilderness, if you will, is outside of the world. Egypt is the world, and Canaan is the world. So they come out of the world into this special place, the wilderness, and they come out through a bloody door and through water. They're now going from this special place, the wilderness, back into the world. And they are going to go through water and pass by this bloody window in this case. 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. 
Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. Notice they don't call a big tribal meeting with everybody gathered around and blab out the report. They go straight to the commander and they tell the commander what they found. And the only thing they know, which is very valuable, by the way, is that the morale of the people in the land that they are going to invade is extremely poor. That's an extremely important piece of military information. Napoleon used to say the moral is to the physical is 10 to 1 or 12 to 1. If you have morale on your side, you can overcome the sheer number of troops on the other side. 23 again. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And that's the important piece of intelligence that they do in fact go back. Et ta chambre.